You're listening to the Afternoon Asks ND Squad, ND for Neurodivergent, with Sarah, Jay and Fran. Jay is Canadian, bringing up her ND family in Australia and is late diagnosed autistic. Fran hails from Germany and is ADHD autistic. Sarah is British Chinese and part of a mixed NT-ND family. Standing up for representation, breaking down stereotypes and challenging ableist perceptions, we're here to discuss all kinds of neurodivergencies in Asian dramas with a dose of scientific research and our own lived experience sprinkled on top. Hope you enjoy! Hi everyone! Hi everyone! Hi everyone! Welcome to our episode, our next in our Afternoon Ask ND series on autistic coded characters in K-drama. And today we're going to be discussing Suspicious Partner. Let's all introduce ourselves for those who might not know us from previous guest host slots. I'm Sarah, I'm a British-born Chinese K-drama fan and I blog reviews on www.kdramadis.com and also post on Instagram and Twitter at kdramadis. I myself am neurotypical, but part of a mixed neurotypical and neurodiverse family, and we have both ADHD and autism in our family. I consider myself an autism ally, and I feel so blessed to be able to share this space with Francisca and Jay, And because I learn from them all the time, both on the podcast and also in, in our private chat that we have all the time, and feel like I'm growing my understanding of neurodiversity. So let's meet our other hosts. Francie, do you want to start? So I'm Francisca. I'm from Germany. I am actually autistic, potentially ADHD. I'm looking into that at the moment. I am a K-drama fan, not, well, kind of recently, like one and a half years ago, maybe now. I post stuff on Twitter and a little bit on Instagram and mostly about, well, K-dramas and autism and stuff like that. And your handle is... Oh yeah. No, don't don't find me please. <laughs> <laughs> I post as wandering Francie as in wandering around. And Francisca's being very modest because actually her other great love that she does post on Twitter a lot about is the subject of this podcast. <laughs> and he's our favorite opa G channel. <laughs> That's very true. I forgot about that. Yeah. So if you are also, a, if you're picking up this podcast because you're also a G-Chunk fan, then go follow Francie because she has bursts of posts about him and you can share the love. Jay, how about you? Thanks. Hi, I'm Jay. I'm originally from Canada, as you can hear in the accent, um, but I live in Melbourne, Australia. I'm autistic, official diagnosis last year, but I suspected, you know, for the last six or seven years after my daughter was diagnosed, parent of neurodivergent children. Actually, our whole household is neurodivergent. Like there's not a neurotypical person in my household. So, and that's really kind of awesome. And because it just means we get each other so well and just support each other. So, I mean, it's, yeah, it works out really well. I'm a K-drama fan, um, probably like also probably similar timeline, maybe like the last two or three years. C-drama fan, uh, K-pop fan, avid reader, all of that. And I can be found on Instagram and Twitter at the account, The Flower That Blooms Alone. And I'm really grateful to be here and participate and want to thank the Nunas for allowing me to be here and to Sarah and Francisca for putting up with me. <laughs> no, well, we're not putting up with you. We're well, we're welcoming you all in this space. We wouldn't want to do it without you. Aw. 
Right, so this episode, we're very excited to be back to discuss another autistic coded character topic. Our part one was on loving contract and the male lead within that uh, being an autistic coded, but we also talked generally about what, what autistic coded means. This week, uh, this podcast topic is going to be on one of everyone's favourite characters. And we've mentioned he's played by Ji Chang Uk. And uh, it's from his drama Suspicious Partner, where he plays the male lead, No Ji Uk. And I love, I love the drama. And I especially love his character. I think this is one of Ji Chang Uk's fa- uh, best um, characters. And it, he always makes me want to feel like I want to, I mean, he already makes me want to pepper this podcast with lots of ice because he's just spent so <laughs> I felt like he spent the whole drama just being so frustrated with with everyone. Yeah. So you may never have considered Noji as autistic coded and I certainly didn't when I first watched it. I watched it quite a long time ago now in my K-drama journey uh, because like many others I came out of watching Healer with Ji Chang-ok and just felt like I really needed to watch another one of his dramas and this is often one of the ones that's recommended but then much later when I discovered Francisca on Twitter she did a really great Tumblr post on all the reasons she thought Nojiuk was autistic coded and I really love this post we will add the link to it to the show notes so you guys can read it at your leisure and it really deserves a really thorough read and, and Francisca's done a super great job of of kind of itemizing all the things that uh, she thought with with screenshots and things like that. And it really made me see the character through different eyes and gave me a real new understanding of his whole character arc. So we thought it'd be really great to have a podcast dedicated to him and why we think he might be autistic coded. So if you've not seen Suspicious Partner, we won't be giving any away any major plot spoilers. But if we do say something we think you might be better off not knowing and you don't want to be spoiled, we will warn you beforehand. But we do hope you'll find this topic interesting, even if you've not seen the drama, because I think there's a lot to unpack on this topic. And in case you haven't heard it, the Afternoon of Delight hosts did a really good full deep dive of Suspicious Partners. So please go back and give it a listen if you haven't. For those of you who haven't watched a drama, or maybe for those where it's kind of been a while, I'm going to just quickly give you an idea of what this drama is about and set the scene so we are kind of all on the same page as to the character and the situations he encounters. Suspicious Partner is a 2017 K-drama and it's a genre mix of romance and crime. The lead characters are played by Ji Chang-ok and Nam Ji-hyun and it's a classic setup of seemingly introverted and reserved intelligent lead who prioritizes and excels at his job but doesn't have much of a social life and he's being confronted with a bubbly chaotic female lead who kind of turns his life upside down the following might sound a bit spoilery but it's actually just the first two episodes there's quite a lot happening in the first two episodes but it does um, kind of set up the story for the rest of the drama the leads who are jiuk and bongi get thrown together over a misunderstanding but they bond over having been cheated on by their exes by coincidence Bongi starts working in Jiok's office as a judicial apprentice when she's suddenly accused of having murdered her ex. He is assigned as prosecutor to her case and threatened by his superior, who unfortunately is the father of the victim, with the end of his career if he doesn't get the maximum sentence for her. However, he has serious doubts and when two murder weapons appear and it becomes clear one was manipulated evidence, he sets her free and inevitably loses his job. 
They meet again years later, both working as lawyers now and struggling with their jobs and lives. Bongi has difficulties finding work as she's labelled as the murderer who got away. Jiok feels responsible because he never found a real killer and he ends up hiring her to work for him. And from this point, the story basically unfolds around their relationship, past trauma, and the quest to find a real killer. Like Sarah, I really, really love this drama. The leads are excellent in their roles. I personally really love Ji Chang-ok in this role. There's a really good supporting cast too, with a group of colleagues and friends that kind of provide support to the leads, but also comedic relief and light-hearted moments. All in all, I think it's a really great drama that it's aged well. I mean, it's 2017 now, so it's six years old. But um, especially when it comes to their relationship, there is quite a lot of green flag moments, which I always find very, very important in um, romances. So basically, this is ignore the drama poster. I think the drama poster is so is so is so what's the word it's just so incorrect and it just gives mm. you a real um impression of this being a really fluffy rom-com and it kind yeah, of does the drama it, yeah and it really isn't it does the drama a real disservice so it is there is comedy in here and there is definitely romance but it's also really wrapped up in in this murder case and the murder case itself it's actually pretty pretty well told and pretty chilling so if you do like your romance with a bit of comedy and a murder case then <laughs> and you haven't seen this drama yet then i would recommend right so that's the that's the synopsis of the drama but i thought what we'd do is go backwards a little bit and uh, first off cover what we did in more depth in part one but in case you hadn't listened to it we wanted to just remind you briefly what we think autistic coded means so jay do you mind just giving us a, a brief recap yeah, no worries. Um, so at its most basic, and I'll use a quotation from a paper that I found online from Crystal Mullis, an autistic character is, and this is her quote, not merely a character they would like to be autistic or that they see a few sprinklings of autistic traits in, but one who is so obviously autistic that they must actually be autistic. And so it's that moment when a character resonates so much to the autistic person watching because they see themselves in the character from the way the character perceives the world and moves through it to their interaction with others. And of course, the myriad of autistic traits. And it's that realization that you have as an autistic person that you are seeing aspects of yourself in the depiction on the screen and it can be a profound and validating experience i mean like even in the paper there were some quotes that she was or some examples that she was giving where um she talked about other characters and other series and that they were not written as autistic but that fans of the series were writing in and saying look even the movement of the person the way they walk and carry themselves and the way that they you know move through space and how they're interacting like i just see myself in this so much like this just resonates so much with me and i just I see myself as this character. And so that is what essentially autistic coded means. And it's also not without a bit of controversy because sometimes producers and writers will argue against it and say that was never their intention to create an autistic coded character. They just wanted to craft someone who was kind of quirky, kind of different. And it's by accident that they've created the character in, in this way, or they knowingly push the envelope as far as they can, but they don't want to use the word autistic outright for various reasons. Like either it's the responsibility of the representation that then they feel that they can't do justice to, or there's some kind of ableism or stereotypes going on where they have a very distinct impression of their mind of what autistic means and that 
in their mind is not their character. So that's kind of one of the issues. And likewise, other fans of the series or whatever of that character may react negatively to any suggestion that a character is autistic. So I mean, like there was also examples given of, you know, perhaps neurotypical fans reacting to discussions of a character being autistic coded and saying, look, like, I don't see that. I think that's, you know, incorrect. I think you're totally reading into something that's not there. And so, I mean, there can be disagreements about about even the notion of seeing somebody as autistic coded. So for myself anyway, like I enjoy these discussions about autistic coded characters, like, you know, like what we're doing here. And I just think it helps generate discussion and awareness about how distinctively autism can present. So I think this is, you know, it's really worthwhile just having these discussions. Yes, totally agree. Thank you for giving us such good concise summary of what we said about autis- what autistic code is isn't um so right let's kick off then let's deep dive nojiuk francisca when because you wrote your the tumblr blog and just to say jay actually had not seen suspicious partner before we decided to do this podcast we just kind of steamrolled her into watching it um, <laughs> so she's kind of should have come at this really fresh but so francisca when did you first think nojiuk was autistic coded was it obvious to you from the get-go or was there a specific character trait that made you think oh he could be autistic Mm -hmm. Yeah, so in the last episode when we spoke about Love and Contract and uh, Jiho, it was like you watched the first 10 minutes of that K-drama and you knew, okay, he's autistic, you know, there's no, no question about this. And I feel like Suspicious Partner was a very, very different journey for me personally, more of a subtle process. I noticed that I related a lot to the character myself, that I saw myself and how he reacted to things. And that when I read comments about his character online, I kind of had this protective urge in a way to defend him and say to people, look, you're completely misunderstanding him. This is not at all why he's behaving like that. A lot of people love his outbursts at work and how he loses his temper and things like that. And some of the comments made it almost seem like he's choleric or anything like that, like he's arrogant. And I just didn't think that really did him justice. Yeah. So I started taking notes on it. And I, I actually, it was like one of my con- comfort dramas last year. So I watched it quite a few times. <laughs> <laughs> so I started taking notes and it took, actually took me quite a while to realize why I related to him so much yeah. and that it was because he was autistic coded and there were actually quite a few, I mean, we will see later quite a few autistic traits um, in his characterization that weren't quite very obvious from the start. But yeah, it took it took me months before I worked up the courage to talk about to anyone about this. Like Jay said earlier, I was really worried that because it's not so obvious and because it's such a well-loved character that people would yeah. get angry at me because of the stigma around autism. Mm. And it's probably got like huge fan base and, you know, like people who've watched it a lot of times. And then, you know, like this, this person comes along and says, oh, he's autistic. And they're like, what, you know, like, why are you saying this about my favorite character or something like that? Yeah, yeah. So I was a bit worried about that. And I had major imposter syndrome. I was like, maybe he isn't actually autistic. Maybe I'm just imagining all of this because he's so different to what you usually see in autistic characters in dramas. But I really see myself in him. And that's why I thought it's so important that we open a discussion about it. Because if it, if I see myself in him and comments on my post have, you know, have shown that other people recognize themselves in him too, then it's really important that we give a platform to that so we can represent those people. 
Yeah, I think it's really interesting that you mentioned having imposter syndrome on this, even though if you consider him possibly autistic, I mean, you are an expert yourself on what it would be like to be autistic. So it's interesting that you say you have imposter syndrome, because I think I've come across this phenomenon before. But do you want to just explain a bit more or one of you explain a bit more what you mean by imposter syndrome here? Sure. I can jump in with a quick description of imposter syndrome. Great. There's a really good website, embraceautism.com, and they have a really good page about it. So imposter syndrome is really prevalent in the autistic community, especially for adults without an intellectual disability and who were late diagnosed or self-diagnosed. And so as Dr. Natalie Engelbrecht says, and this is one of her quotes, when you spend your whole life masking who you are to make others like you and find a sense of belonging, you cannot show up authentically. You end up feeling like an imposter. So basically after a lifetime of masking um, and dealing with medical professionals who don't realize and or don't recognize adult autism, for people who have additional conditions as well, and also who don't fit the perceived stereotype of what autism looks like, or even having loved ones and family members deny that we could be autistic, plus just the way that we you know, tend to overthink everything. This all contributes to imposter syndrome. This is definitely something that's quite common in the autistic community. And this happens with so many people and it, not just self-diagnosed people as well. It's even, I've read on autistic Twitter and I also have this experience as well, that even once we have a formal diagnosis that we also question it. And it's so funny because you'd think that once you have this confirmation that you'd be like, okay, yeah, okay, that's, you know, I, I understand this now. But many of us are just kind of like, was the assessment correct? Did my specialist actually see me correctly? Maybe I'm not. Maybe, maybe I could, this can be explained by something else. You know, um, yeah, I'm yeah. so different from other people. Maybe this isn't it. I think it's one of those, because it's a neurotype, it's not like, you know, if you're chronically ill or something like that, or if you broke your back and you can't walk, that's always there. But it feels like to me, obviously I'm always autistic, but I struggle more sometimes and less other times due to like so many factors. So when I struggle less, I'm like, oh, maybe I'm not autistic you know, mm. after all. And I think that really contributes to imposter syndrome because you're like, do I actually deserve this diagnosis? Because it is a disability. And you're like, sometimes some days you're just like, I don't actually feel disabled today. <laughs> so <laughs> maybe I'm not autistic after all. Maybe I'm just, you know, and with Nojioka, I was just like, I don't know, you know, like maybe I'm just imagining things. Maybe I'm just reading into this. Maybe I'm just, I don't know, who knows. Yes, that makes a lot of sense. Jay, you've just recently finished this. So did you, how did you find it? Did you, what struck you the most? Do you agree on the autistic coded nature of his character? Yes, eventually. <laughs> <laughs> I think I came to it rather slowly. Like I said, like you pointed out, I was still the last one of the group of us to watch it. And I just finished it actually just yesterday. And um, I was really slow to see him as autistic in his character. And it was so subtle and so different from Jung Ji-ho in Love and Contract. And I recall messaging Francisca as I was starting it that I, I didn't see it quite in the early episodes. And yeah. it wasn't that I didn't trust her appraisal or that I doubted the resonance for her at all. It's just that personally, I wasn't seeing it yet. And I also hadn't read her blog post because I just I wanted to go into this totally cold and just see it from my view there was a point though like after all the small traits 
that we were, we'll discuss in a bit just kept adding up. And then I just kept coming back to kind of his sense of ethics and then his black and white thinking. And that is just so common with many autistic people. Plus, I just like laughed outright at a couple of scenes where he just either said or demonstrated that, you know, while he loved being a prosecutor and loved his career and what he was doing, the people aspect and dealing with people was just so exasperating, if not outright annoying. Yeah. That really just clinched it for me. I was like, oh yeah, he's, he's so autistic. There's just no doubt now. <laughs> I'm so glad you've come around to it. Like I was like messaging you and I was saying, yeah, yeah, it's okay. It's okay if you don't agree. But in my mind, I was like, oh God, she doesn't agree. Maybe, maybe I made it up all along. <laughs> <laughs> Imposter syndrome strikes again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, real life examples is that. So for me, one of the most interesting points you made was about a strong moral compass. And I wanted to just kind of discuss this a bit more because it's not one of the stereotypical traits that the media portray in autism, but it's one I definitely recognize from my own family where policing the rules is really important. When something that's unfair has happened, it really, it really impacts them and makes them feel like a real kind of boiling rage. It's a real sense of injustice. And I think it's a really important character trait, actually. So perhaps could you tell us a little bit more about why you see this as being a big part of Nojil's character and how well they portrayed that aspect of him as well as showing the struggles he had with it? Hmm. Okay. I think it just, it's one of those traits that is like a red line through the whole drama. It starts with, and this is not really a spoiler because it's like in the second episode and it was in the synopsis, but he loses his job over it at the beginning. So when Bongi is accused of murdering someone, the lead prosecutor threatens him and says, look, you need to get the maximum sentence for her and you need to you know, make sure that she goes to prison or you lose your job over this. You can see his struggle in the courtroom when he's about to demand like 15 years life sentence for this crime and there is considerable doubt that she's done it so he doesn't believe she's actually murdered him he's really 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 torn because obviously he loves his job and he doesn't want to lose it but in the end he sets her free and he basically loses everything over it you could just really see his physical struggle with this dilemma and there are so many examples throughout the drama where we can see a similar thing happen there's a case later on where it's not actually his case and he gets into arguments with his colleague and good friend over it because the client in the case, she says she murdered someone, but there is again considerable doubt that she actually did it. And his friend says, well, okay, I have to respect the client's wish because she says, she, you know, she's done it. So I have to, you know, like do what she says. But Nojiok just says, we know she hasn't done it, so we need to find the right person who's killed this person. They really clash over this. And for Nojiok, it's just like really, really, really black and white. It's not right to send a person to prison who hasn't actually done it, even if they want to. To him, it's like, she's not done it, so we can't send her to prison, so we have to find the right person. And there's no, not even an argument about it to him. To him, it's like really, really, really clear. And to his colleague, it's not so easy because there's like loads of people involved and there's loads of circumstances that impact this. And he sees like all these grey areas that Nojiok doesn't see and they really clash over this. Yeah, there's um, 
this whole thing about being a ruthless prosecutor that makes him well kind of hated by all the lawyers because he makes him lose all the cases and he's very very good at his job but he doesn't really you know to him the most important thing is to get those criminals behind bars to get them into prison And he doesn't care about anything else. He doesn't care about getting along with his colleagues. He doesn't care about the other lawyers, you know, like having a good working relationship with them and maybe doing compromises or things like that. He he doesn't care for any of that. And he ends up very isolated because of it. Mm. And in his mind, obviously, he's doing a great job because he's doing what he's supposed to do. He's, you know getting all those criminals convicted. But yeah, for his personal life, I think it's, it's quite difficult. Yeah, actually, that part of it reminds me a bit of Jung Ji Ho and how he was in his his career as well. He was obviously good at it, um, but wasn't massively liked by any of his colleagues. Yeah, quite isolated. Yeah. And I mean, this whole lawyer prosecutor thing, obviously, he loses his prosecutor job at the beginning. So then he has to he starts to work as a lawyer instead, because that's his only option, unless, you know, he wants to like change career completely. But obviously, being a lawyer is quite a different thing. You have to defend people rather than prosecute criminals. Depending on your clients, you could well defend someone who's actually guilty. And he really, really, really struggles with that. He really struggles to work for people where he knows they've done something wrong he can't he really struggles taking their side because he knows it's not you know they should be punished and there is a really really good scene right at the beginning where there's like a son he's like a te- like a teenager i think he's like 18 19 or something like that just finishing school something he's beaten up someone <laughs> and he's like this this typical rich entitled kid his mom wants to bail him out without you know him being punished and he has like no understanding of right and wrong he just knows he can get away with things because his mom bails him out all the time yeah. And we get this brilliant Nojiuk losing his temper big time and just going on this rant in front of them about how he's never going to learn anything about morals and ethics if his mom's always going to bail him out. And he paints this picture of, you know, like his criminal um, activities, like escalating further and further into like drug, drug abuse and things like that. And you just see the shocked faces of the mom and the son. And it's hilarious. But also it just like really, really, really shows his struggle with this because he knows the son should be punished, but his job is to defend him in court and get the best outcome for him. And he's just like, this is not right. I can't do this. And it's it seems like physically impossible for him to go against his sense of ethics and his morals. There is um, a conversation that I found was really significant where I thought this is like a really autistic thing. We, We skip ahead two years and he's worked as a lawyer two years. And one of his, I don't actually know what, a a paralegal, is that the correct term? Yeah, Um, I think, yeah. Mr. Mr. Pang, yeah. Yeah. He, they're really close and they are really supportive of each other. And he just says to Jiu, look, you've worked as a lawyer for two years and you're still behaving as if you're a prosecutor. And 
everyone else in this universe would have adapted by now and gotten used to this job and you mm -hmm. still haven't this inability to adapt to this and to change and to like accept the circumstances this rigidity in a way to me felt very autistic yeah and obviously this going against his morals and um, his ethics is just like so difficult for him he can't just change that it's like so much part of his character that he can't just abandon those principles just to do a job that's just not yes. possible yeah so that makes a, a lot of sense actually because we've, we've been talking before as well about struggles with work and and obviously we've got we've had similar themes with both extraordinary attorney Wu who was obviously attorney and loving contract where he was a judge and I remember both of you mentioning that what you really want to see in portrayals of autism is that the toll that the added stress takes on autistics and we've discussed this in in our chat that we had but that this drama actually does show this right it shows up his exhaustion and, and how difficult he finds it right yeah, there's lots of scenes like that. And I really, really like that about this drama. Because obviously, um, working as a prosecutor or a lawyer is like a very demanding job, like all the work that goes into it, all the research, all the preparation for the trials and things like that must be really, really exhausting in itself. And then being an autistic person on top of that, it must just be so draining. And there's so many scenes in this drama where we just see Nojio come home after work and he just, sometimes he just sits alone in a dark room, not doing anything, or he just lies on the sofa listening to calming music with, with his eyes closed, or he's just really calmly reading books by himself or there's this um everyone will remember this scene they finish a case and they get back to um their office which is now in kind of like the basement of where he lives and he goes upstairs and he just sits down in his in an armchair and he literally all he does is he closes his eyes and doesn't move anymore and he's just so exhausted that he can't he can't do anything anymore. He just wants to sit there and not be bothered by anyone. We get Bong Yi coming up and she needs something and she just sees him sit there and she's like, oh God, he's he's still got his tie on everything. You know, it must be so uncomfortable. And um, she actually tries to take it off because she thinks he's asleep, which he isn't, which is a, a very funny, um, very sexy scene. But like, you know, for the autistic discussion, it's just this exhaustion where you come home after a day of interacting with lots of people of doing lots of things of just having a stressful job and just all the masking you need to do to appear normal and neurotypical for other people and you just come home and you just you're so exhausted you're so drained I have this sometimes, you know, and I don't have the energy to like take a shower or to even cook or things like that and you just want to sit down and do nothing and just recover and that looks different for everyone but I really really like that we saw that in this drama that we got these scenes because uh, they were definitely missing from the other dramas that we've discussed. Yes definitely. Uh, I liked also that they mentioned the insomnia over and over again and that this was kind of a recurring issue with him and it's not just um, like when they're talking about the nightmares or whatever that's going on that's related to past trauma and stuff but sleep is such a, a big issue for many autistic people and you know problems mm. with sleep and sleep irregularity and it's just so common and so the fact that it was you know mentioned or that it was portrayed so much as it was and that we could see that he struggled with you know going to sleep staying asleep that there was you know the, the the infamous tea the infamous bitter tea yeah. <laughs> that yeah. he's having to drink to try and, and fall asleep this became 
you know, part of his character as well. And so, I mean, that I thought was on point. Yeah, I agree with that, actually. I think I think there's an, a sense of, I think, for many people, especially those with ADHD, that they can't shut their brain off. So there's just a lot going on in their heads and it kind of prevents them from sleeping um, because it's just constantly on all the time and obviously it's exhausting enough as it is in the day and then to not be able to get rest it just compounds and compounds to the to the point when you just effectively you burn out right because you've just had to deal with so much um so yeah I agree that it's a it's a constant theme throughout actually and and it's funny because when obviously when I first watched it because I think insomnia can be one of those romance tropes that characters can often suffer from insomnia and then when they meet their one true love find that this person kind of helps them sleep right because they finally found a place that's safe for them and uh and it allows them to calm down enough or feel safe enough that they can actually sleep and I think this happens with, with between him and Bong Yi as well so I kind of took it from a romance thing of like oh it's really cute that they created this thing where he's like got insomnia um, but then he falls in love with her and she becomes a safe place for him that he can actually then find some sleep and some rest so well, we've talked again about stress and the sense of overwhelm. It doesn't just show up as exhaustion, but also we're talking about how we know there are quite a few different ways that Noji Uk reacts to things that are out of his out of his control that are overwhelming and are stressful for him. And what I mean by this is that, um, which is something we mentioned early on, that there's some of the really iconic scenes of this drama and almost like scenes of comic relief. And I mentioned the Aish and it's when Jiuk's actually losing his temper in meetings. So for you guys, was this also part of the autistic coded nature of his character? No, absolutely. I, I could see that right away. And when you could see him in the meetings and this happened over and over again and like you said it was it's almost like a comedic bent to it that they have but there's also this underlying aspect that he's trying to lead workplace meetings and he has this plan in place for what he wants to occur and what he wants to happen and the meetings just spiral out of control all the time and that there's you know there's it's just like he loses control of the meetings and everyone's arguing with each other or you know gossiping or laughing or whatever they're doing and he just wants to focus on work and that's just not happening and so then he gets really frustrated and you can kind of just see you know that he's just getting overwhelmed and frustrated and agitated and it usually comes out with him yelling or just okay meeting is done that's it all right and there was that point too as well where you always see the hands over the ears before he just like starts shouting and you can see he's got his head down his hands over his ears and he's just ah, what is with you people? And so, yeah, that seemed really consistent for me. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's just this whole idea that his outbursts are something negative. I mean, people thought it was funny, but normally when someone loses their temper or has like outbursts of anger, which is what this looks like, if you, if you don't know, right? So it's usually something negative, someone who can't control themselves or someone who wants to bully people or hurt people, or it's like a power game, you know, they want to show that they are in charge, but usually they shout when actually they don't have arguments and they aren't really in charge, but they are like pulling that card off. I'm your superior, you know, you just stop talking now. And um, yeah, anyway maybe this is just me being like oh my god I hope people don't get this impression but this is where I wanted to kind of defend him where I was like okay this is not actually him trying to shout at people in that sense but it's 
like Jay said, it's a release of emotion, you know, like he's stressed, he's frustrated, and he doesn't know what to do with himself in this situation, but it's not actually aimed at anyone. He doesn't want to hurt anyone with it, or he doesn't want to put anyone down with it. And I thought this is quite a common misunderstanding, and it's Mm. quite important to point things like that out. Yes. Yeah. No, really good point, I think. I, I think it's just also sometimes when you have that level of frustration and as to Jay's point, the sensory overload as well. Because I think when I was watching this, I always felt like, yeah, like you said, it was partly in the comedy and then in his frustration and his ice, the whole kind of like head in hands was just to like show people how frustrated he was and like how he just couldn't deal with these people. But then when I went back to some of these scenes with this new kind of lens on of autistic coded, I thought, actually, yeah, right. He is he is sensory overloaded. And, and that is part of the reason he's so frustrated. Mm. I mean, it's especially those meetings when he wants to talk about the job because this is what's important to him, right? We've said this before. He is not interested in in chit chat or in bonding with the colleagues and stuff like that. He just wants to get the stuff done that needs doing and, you know, like very efficient. And then everyone just starts talking about other stuff. And in his mind, he's just like, why is this happening? Why are they talking about this? This is a work meeting. We've got an agenda. We've got a schedule. We have to talk about certain things. Why are they suddenly bringing up who's dating whom and, you know, like completely irrelevant things? And it's just so out of his control and he can't stop it. And it keeps happening in every meeting. And that's why he gets so frustrated. I was going to mention as well with the sensory overload aspect, like as we were just talking about it and I could just visualize in my mind their meeting room. And when you look at their meeting room as well, it's small, it's enclosed, Weren't the walls like glass or something as well? And so I'm thinking if you had a table with, you know, however many was it, five of them, six of them that were sitting at the table and you have all these raised voices just echoing back and forth in that room, that would be a lot for anybody. And for an autistic person, that would that would be just so overwhelming. Yeah. And and actually even just having to give up his because effectively what he did was made his house part an office right so what was his sanctuary and his place to be alone as Fran has said to be in a dark room has now also become his workplace and it's filled with people all the time right clients as well as his colleagues as well as the the boss that keeps coming and and just other people just in his space so he must also now feel like you know he's lost it's to some way his sanctuary and then it's now become filled with lots of people and that must also contribute to this feeling of like okay I've got an I've got an overload with me you can see as well tries to keep his upstairs like his last bit of sanctuary right and so there's a couple of times as well where he's he's kind of said in, in the drama like don't come upstairs to various characters either like Bong Hui or or later on the young child that finds his way to their office and you know he'll say like don't come upstairs upstairs is mine and yet we always see all the way through the drama that inevitably all of his colleagues or whoever is always coming up the stairs and bothering him and intruding on his private space. Like this is the last bit of private space that he has in his home. And he doesn't even have that anymore. Although I think it's really nice to see how he tolerates it from Bong Yi, And it's just such mm. a testament to how comfortable he is with her. I mean, not just that she helps him fight his insomnia, you know, when she's there, he can actually fall asleep but also when she takes off that tie in that scene I described earlier he doesn't push her away or anything like that he's like okay I'm really struggling right now can you stay here and can you just be here for me you don't need to do anything just you know 
stay here for five minutes so I can relax and kind of recover from this stressful day. And I thought that was really, really beautiful to see that um, in their developing uh, relationship. Yeah, it really evolved, didn't it? Like it, over the, the episodes, like just the nature of it. And you can see this kind of this evolution of it. Yeah. So even though it is his space and he is overwhelmed, she is a person that he still feels comfortable to be in that space and to be there when he's overwhelmed. And he kind of doesn't feel like she adds to the exhaustion mm. and to the being overwhelmed, but rather has like a positive effect on it, a relieving effect. And I think that's that's really beautiful. I was going to add the other ways that he deals with stress. There was this scene that was in there. I can't remember what episode it was, but where he's he's feeling overwhelmed again with everything that's going on. And he's washing clean dishes, like dishes that are already clean that haven't been used. And he's like got scrubber out and he's cleaning all of the dishes <laughs> and I think if there was a couple of moments that clinched it for me in the series you know this is an autistic coded character I think that was one of them was just that means for him and that mechanism for him to try and get a semblance of control back into his life that this was something that he could do and a means of him to just have that moment of trying to process through what is happening and process his stress and one way he could do this was with cleaning or organizing and so I just remember seeing that scene and it just resonated so much and just, you know, like, okay, I totally see what this is. Yeah. And the same with the cooking. Like we even have a scene where he cooks something and everyone comes to the office in the morning and he's like prepared this <laughs> basically buffet of food. And his friend is like, did something happen? You only cook when something happened or you only cook in like this on, on this scale when something happened. Mm. And his friend already recognizes that this is, you know, like one of the mechanisms when he can't sleep and when he's processing things, he cooks a lot of food. Yeah. And he also kind of refuses, consistently refuses. And we see this all the way through the drama, right? That he, often people are like, let me do it. Let me help. And he's like, no, no, this is like I'm doing, you know, this is the cooking, the cleaning thing I'm going to do because it's his, you know, it's his way, isn't it? I mean, it mirrors what we saw with Jiho and Sungen in Love and Contract. <laughs> Maybe he just anticipates that if Bongi goes into his kitchen and actually cooks, first, it's not going to be edible. <laughs> Second, she's yeah, probably going to yeah. make a mess of everything. <laughs> so, uh... Yeah, it's better for him to maintain the control if he does it all himself. So cool. Since we're talking about them together, because we haven't really touched much on their relationship together so far. And obviously we don't want to spoil it too much for those who haven't seen the drama. And I'm not going to set the scene too much. But there is in the first half of the drama, an iconic scene where we hear Jiok thoughts, where he's narrating flashbacks of scenes showing relationships in his life, both with the female lead, but also his ex and his parents. And he talks about being scared to start something new because he's more familiar with things ending, more familiar with loss. So he doesn't want to risk his heart too much. And I really thought that was, it was a real heartbreaking scene actually. And, and But it really kind of spoke to me as somebody who remembers relationships from the loss point of view. So I wondered if you guys wanted to speak a little bit about that. Yeah, that was something that I mentioned in the private group chat actually. And it seemed to be something that I'd read on autistic Twitter many, many times as well, that there seemed to be this sentiment among many autistic people that were afraid to start new friendships, new relationships, just because we dealt with relationships ending so many times. And we're so experienced with loss and the end of friendships and the end of relationships that it, it makes you honestly, many times not want to, and to not, not even to put yourself forward and not even to do this. And I think 
he mentions that in the drama a couple of times in the beginning too as well where he's hesitating and he's processing his feelings and he's trying to work through this and you know he says that he's a coward and that he's too scared to to do this and that resonated a lot for me when you've gone through friendships and relationships ending quite often that it's just you have this almost this sense of fatality about it okay i know how this is going to work out like i know how this is going to end and it's going to end badly and it's just because previous experience tells you so and so the fact that this was even mentioned in this drama and the light bulb went off and i was like wow okay that's really autistic coded yeah i think it didn't really get discussed in this way in the drama but i think for many autistic people this is the case because of all the difficulties with social relationships because we lose or a lot of autistic people have the experience that they lose friends and they don't actually understand why because there's misunderstandings, miscommunications, um, things that weren't picked up on, all these unwritten rules and all these social things that are difficult for a lot of autistic people because they're unwritten and they're never spoken aloud. Yeah, it, it's it's really hard. It's a bit like ghosting, mm. isn't it? It's really hard when you lose friends, but you don't understand why. And they're often isn't even a discussion about it they just disappear from your life so that's I think one of the reasons why so many autistic people have so much experience with losing friends and similar things but this isn't necessarily a part of this story although the topic and the theme are the same it's not necessarily discussed that he's like lost a lot of friends the stuff that triggers it for him I think is obviously the stuff with his parents in his past and then all the things with his ex who cheated on him and his best friend being involved in things and just like people who were very very dear to him being torn out of his life for a variety of reasons but it all was out of his control it all wasn't caused by anything that he did and so that's kind of like where this this anxiety about starting something new and about you know like risking having this happen again comes from for him I think. And actually, I find it quite interesting for a romantic comedy as well that, well, kind of comedy, that um, there are actually developments over such a long time. So they, when they first get to know each other and where we are eventually at the end of the drama, quite a lot of time has passed. So I don't know whether there's also a kind of delay processing almost and a difficulty coming to understand his feelings and where they've come from, because obviously their relationship has also changed from where it was at the beginning when he was actually prosecuting her for murder to, mm. to, to where they ended up. And I think the lack of clarity potentially of how he actually felt was perhaps part of that as well. Yeah, I think he even says that himself when he confesses his feelings to her at some point in the drama. He says, okay, I'm sorry that I realized this late and I should have realized earlier. And I think this whole difficulty of processing feelings and of understanding feelings and naming feelings is a very autistic thing. I think there's a name for it, but I've forgotten what it's called now. I don't know if anyone else can. Yes. Can you remember? I was just <laughs> talking about it with my husband the other day because we were talking about it's actually a, a like a co-occurring condition that many autistic or neurodivergent people have. So people with alexithemia typically have trouble processing their emotions. And apparently alexithemia itself literally means without words for emotions. So they might not recognise they're actually having an emotional response. They might have a bodily response, but they won't be able to connect it to an emotion. 
I mean, for me, I don't have this all the time, but sometimes I do have this and sometimes I react a certain way to situations, but I can't name what exactly it is that I'm feeling or why I'm feeling like that. And I need some time and I need to say to people, look, I need I need half an hour, sometimes several hours, sometimes a day overnight to kind of think through it and figure out why I reacted that way and what's kind of like at the root of the problem. Because just because I'm feeling angry or I think I'm feeling angry, it might actually be that I'm feeling hurt or that I'm jealous. And obviously those are very, very different things. And I've learned that I shouldn't act on this first impulse of what I think I'm feeling because it's often not the right thing. And I really want to get it right um, if I start shouting at someone for being, you know, like not, I don't know, you know, for doing something to me. And then um, later I find out, oh, actually it wasn't about that. It was actually that I was feeling hurt because they didn't do something that I didn't actually tell them to or I don't know yes I agree completely and that's like that's just so me as well (laughs) I'm trying to learn to allow that processing time and to allow that buffer because in the past I've just reacted and then of course if you have this that you don't even know what you're feeling you can't identify it you don't know what it is where it's coming from you can't name it and you don't know what's going on then it just makes situations so much worse and so exactly I'm trying to learn to just say like I need to take some time like I just need to take some time to process this and it's just kind of like a learned skill that I'm trying to teach myself and I'm still working on it (laughs) um but I mean, it's, and we see this with him in the drama, because we see this a few times where she says, can we talk about something? And he says, not right now. Or can we discuss this? And not yet. And he just needs this time to be able to process and sort out what he's feeling and what he's thinking and what's happening. And he just, he can't go right into things. Yeah. To me, it's just really important to point out to people who, you know, like haven't experienced this. It's not that we don't feel things. It's more that we feel things, but we don't find the words to it. We can't like connect. But I don't know if it's like different parts of the brain. There's actually um, charts and wheels and things like that that list all the emotions so you can like go through it and think, oh, is it this one? No, it's not this one. Is it this one? Oh, no, it's that, not that one. Until you find the correct one that resonates with what you actually feel. It sounds a bit ridiculous, but um, sometimes when you're like, this doesn't happen all the time. It just happens in certain situations when you're probably already stressed with something else and it just gets all a bit yeah. too overwhelming. And I think for me also, it's it's one of those things that gets classified, you know, because obviously the big myth with autistic people is that they don't feel empathy, right? They don't have empathy. This whole, <laughs> exactly. The whole theory of mind thing, which I will we'll blow apart another time. <laughs> but I think actually is, I think also slightly related to this lack of understanding of how common alexithymia is actually for people who are autistic. And, and it just, yeah the the difficulty in differentiating these emotions like being able to physically feel them but not understand what that feeling means it must be a very confusing thing mm-hmm. and I, I don't know yeah. whether or not I mean as it's, we can also overthink these things but I often think as well one of the other famous scenes in Suspicious Partners that that often gets put into uh, like a gif and a meme is the jealousy scene you know where basically she's Bongi's talking to his best friend in the garden under an umbrella and then he's standing over them looking at them and he's watering his plants and he just just decides he's going to water them because it's like you know, it's almost like he feels like something right so he's like I'm gonna this is my reaction to you guys I'm just gonna spray you with water because after that there's no mention of it there's no kind of like discussion of why that happened it was just like you know I felt an emotion I sprayed you with water well there is kind of they are picking up on it again because something similar happens but he's not alone that time he's got his colleague Mr. Pang with him and he reaches for the water hose and Mr. Pang is like 
you really shouldn't do this. And he's kind of like saying to him, you should behave according to your age. And I thought this is, again, such a typical thing to show behaviors that maybe aren't appropriate in a certain situation because you've misjudged it. And I think this is just such a such a great example for that. Very true. I agree. So we've talked a lot about things. and I think it's been really interesting, actually, to think about things that we perhaps haven't seen in other dramas, and especially not the two that we've covered so far on this podcast. But there are also ones that are perhaps a bit more typically autistic, which I'm saying in, in quote marks. Mm, yeah, we, we were actually talking about this in the chat earlier, and I hadn't picked up on these, but uh, Jay mentioned that there actually are quite a lot of stims that he does in the drama. Yes, it was really interesting. For those of you who follow me on my Instagram, you might know that, uh, and those on the Patreon might know that I took a work trip to Washington DC just this week. And I posted on the Patreon said I'm I'm going to be in DC. I've got one evening free if anyone's in the DC area and fancies doing an afternoon, a Patreon meetup, like jot down here. And in the end, there were five of us who went out to dinner and it was just the most fun thing. And these are like my first in real life afternoon, a delight Patreon kind of meet. And I think for many of us, we first felt so liberated that we could just all night, we could just talk in real life to somebody about gay drama and not have that other person, which is my experience, just glaze over and just try to move the subject. <laughs> subject on. <laughs> and um so I think for all of us we were just like yeah we can just like really talk about K-drama but anyway I mentioned that we were doing this this podcast and obviously quite a few people around the table had actually seen Suspicious Partner and one of the other people on the table who's actually in publishing and she's publishing a book on autism and I'd mentioned this and the first thing she said Fran actually which you might find interesting was oh yeah touching the wall yes and I'd actually forgotten that he does that obviously I've like, been a long time since I saw that drama but as soon as she said it I thought yes because actually they show it a lot it's not just a one-off thing yeah they show that he does that often in times when he feels like he needs grounding or something and I just thought oh that's really interesting that somebody who'd obviously watched the drama not really thought about the autistic coded but when I mentioned the first thing they thought of was that Yeah, I didn't actually feature that in my article, but I thought that was very, very striking, even like the first time I watched a drama. And I can't decide if either it's like a sort of sensory seeking Mm. thing that he likes the touch of the wall and like runs his fingers along it. And it's like his depression phase at the start of the drama when he starts working as a lawyer and he's lost his job as a prosecutor and he really can't settle into this job. And he basically, every single day, when he walks around from room to room, he runs his hand along the wall. But someone also suggested that maybe it's, a, I mean, I guess that's also sensory seeking, but maybe he's just so starved of human contact and of touch mm. that he needs that because he's lacking, he's lacking like physical contact in his life. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, there could be many reasons for it, but yeah, it was very, very repetitive. And I think definitely could be seen as something that's regulating your emotions and that's what stimming does right you regulate your emotions you calm yourself in a way and that's probably one of the things that you could see the touching the walls as um, a stim like that as him regulating his emotions yeah i agree jay what about you I noticed the ear pulling as as well as the hair scratching but the ear pulling stood out to me as well because we saw that quite a, a number of times if we're just talking about stims that was that was one that stood out to me mm-hmm, yeah so for those people who are not so familiar with what stim and stimming is for autistic people do you mind just giving us a brief kind of description of what that is 
I mean, like I just said, it's kind of things that are done to regulate emotions. So if you're very stressed, like the last podcast, when I edited it, there was something that sounded like someone clicking a pen. Right. And I mentioned this to the others because I was like, okay, we need to find some other methods of stimming while we're doing the podcast because it's really annoying if the microphone picks it up. So I, at the moment, I'm wearing like several rings on my fingers and I'm the whole time playing with the rings on my finger. And I really hope that the mic isn't picking up on that. That's so funny because I'm the neurotypical one on this podcast, but I I, str- I struggle sometimes with meeting. So I'm actually knitting at the moment because I have to do something to keep my hands busy. And it really helps me focus when I'm in meetings. So you've got your rings and I'm knitting. <laughs> So yeah, it's a repetitive motion. It can be like something that you do with your hands or your feet, foot tapping. Lots of people also stim with food, with eating certain foods or with like, you know, the textures of the foods or some people stim with uh, body movements. So there's a very typical stim that people will recognize in autistic people where they kind of like sway from one foot Mm. to the other. That's like a very typical thing. Or what is it called? Again, there's like echolalia or something like that, where you stim by repeating certain phrases or sounds. So there's like loads of things, but it's all basically used to regulate your emotions, to relieve stress or things like that. I actually think that neurotypical people have them too, but we trained out of them. You know, when we're like younger, because everybody just goes, don't fidget, don't don't shake your leg, don't do this, don't do that. Yeah. Mm, And I think that, you know, a world where all of us could stim the way we wanted to or needed to just to, you know, in certain situations should just be this the world we should be creating for all of us. But yeah, other like more in quotation mark typical autistic things is the whole like arrogant thing that a lot of people picked up on in like comments on yeah. the drama, which is basically his lack of social skills. I mean, he's basically disliked by everyone at work and he doesn't invest in the work relationships or in the small talk. He doesn't say hello to anyone. And there's actually a scene at the end of the K-drama and this isn't a spoiler, but one of the colleagues when he comes to work and he doesn't say anything and everyone's like, well, come back or something. And he is like, oh, well, I didn't want to see you guys. And his colleague just says to himself, I completely forgot what a complete jerk. <laughs> <laughs> there are so many scenes where you like get this that he kind of rubs people just the wrong way because he doesn't do the small talk he doesn't do the social skills stuff yeah yeah and i mean it even goes so far with this honesty and this directness that is often attributed to autistic people that he kind of well he does kind of insult people and i mean this is not okay but this is something you know he doesn't pack things in nice words to make them nicer for people to hear he just says them yeah. as they are and if he thinks someone's stupid he says they are stupid so very true yeah i think for me also obviously we talked about the fact that he's living in his own place but he has things to have to be in, in a certain space i think you guys mentioned the books on the stairs everything's mm. just kind of got a it, they've got to be in a certain way for him Okay, so there's so much we talked about now that I didn't see before, but now I kind of can't unsee it. So, Jay, you said earlier, you wonder what this drama would be like if Nojiuk was a neurotypical character. And I thought that that was a really fascinating question, especially because as many people commented on Francisca's Tumblr post, they, they didn't ever think of him like that by themselves. But then after they read the post, that it totally made sense. Mm. So what do you, yeah, what do you think about that? <laughs> 
Yeah, I was kind of, when I posed this last night in the chat and I was just thinking about it and that how different the entire drama would be if he was neurotypical. And I think the entire premise and the character arc would be so different because his moral code and his sense of justice are just so strongly articulated in part to being autistic. And so much of his inner struggle that we see occurring throughout the drama wouldn't occur in this way. And likewise, his drive to see these unanswered questions that are happening about Jung Hyung-soo, this is such an autistic thing. And it reminded me a bit of autistic hyperfixation and how that could be really an asset when you're researching cases. Although there's that scene where his adoptive father says that he kind of worries about him always working too hard and for such long hours. But I mean, that was an aspect about it as well. And so there was just this whole, this whole aspect of his character with the moral, strong moral compass and this sense of justice and this drive that he gets. And so I think that this whole, his whole inner struggle and his whole journey that way would have been so different if he was a neurotypical character. And it would have made the drama so different and it would have looked different. Mm -mm. Yeah, I agree. I think there was also a lot about the relationships he had with people that were very, very intense. And we had all this struggle with the people who betrayed him, but he couldn't on one side let go of the friendship. He couldn't leave the people out of his life. And he kind of like wanted to keep friends with him because they were so important to him. And I feel like the way it was portrayed in drama and the way it played out was a very autistic thing. So I think this whole constellation of him and his friends and all the characters around him would have been very, very different if he was a neurotypical character. Mm. Yes, I think that's really interesting. Jay, just picking up your thing about the autistic hyperfixation. Do you want to just explain a little bit about what that is? Because that's obviously another quite typical neurodivergent trait? Sure. Just off the top of my head, hyperfixation is just this ability or capacity to intensely focus on something. It could be what people see as special interests, an issue, a topic. It's just that ability to lose yourself in it, to be so intensely, passionately consumed by whatever it is that interests you, that you can work for 12 hours and forget that you didn't eat lunch or to just, you know, throw yourself into something and learn absolutely everything about it. I mean, this is kind of what we're talking about. And it is extremely common with neurodivergent people, like autistic people mm. plus ADHD as well. If you can use your hyperfixation to align with your career or your studies, I mean, it's a great asset. Yes. Yeah, I totally agree. And also Greta Thunberg is probably a really good example mm. of an autistic person who's hyperfixated yes. on something and has achieved so much probably because of that hyperfixation, right? But I also think that for Nojiuk, it's a bit of a cognitive dissonance with the whole murder case and who's done it. He just, it doesn't make sense to him and he can't bear it. It takes like a mental toll on him that it's not solved. And he even says this like in the early episodes, lots of people actually said, okay, he wants to find the murderer because he's already in love with Bong-hee. But I don't think that at that stage he actually is, or at least he's not aware of it. And there's like loads of other explanations for why he's so intent on solving that case. And I think one could be hyperfixation and the other could be that he just really struggles with that cognitive dissonance, that he doesn't, he can't let that case go because it's not solved and he doesn't have closure for it. And he needs those answers and he can't stop investigating because it's just, yeah, it's just impossible for him to do that. Yes, I agree. Yeah. One other soft subject I wanted to bring up because I, it's something that I mentioned actually in the very first 
Extraordinary Attorney Woo podcast that I did, but I didn't have time to delve too deeply into it. So I wanted to just bring it up here because I think it's it's relevant. So when we're describing No Ji Uk and also Jong Ji Ho in Loving Contract, people would often say, oh, they seem to be examples of what a lot of people would call high functioning autism. And actually it's a term that Wu Yong Wu describes for herself in Extraordinary Attorney Woo, that she is a high functioning autistic. And that somehow this is kind of like the less disabled end of the spectrum of autism. And I really wanted to explore this topic because it's a very, very common misunderstanding of autism. So can you guys explain what autism spectrum actually means and why it isn't about functioning labels and why using functioning labels like high functioning and low functioning is actually really problematic? Mm, yeah, I actually found that really, really annoying. I probably said that in the Extraordinary Attorney Wu podcast too, that that K-drama was kind of sloppy in all the ways they were describing autism and all the kind of like language they used for it, because they had this episode where they explained what Asperger's is and why that term shouldn't be yes. used anymore. But then they continued to use it I throughout agree. the drama. And the same, they were using high functioning and things like that. And it's just, they weren't very consistent with it. Yeah. Autism spectrum, I think a lot of people understand as kind of like a linear Mm. scale that you have a little bit autistic on one end and very autistic on the other end. In a similar way, functioning labels kind of mirror that in that you've got high functioning autism and low functioning autism. But actually, it's not quite accurate. That's not what's meant when we say autism spectrum you can imagine it more like one of those spider diagrams that looks like a spider web thingy each of the points around the spider web is different aspects of the autistic experience different things we might be struggling with like social interactions or sensory sensitivities executive functioning emotional regulation and so on and so forth there are like loads of them right But every autistic individual has, well, probably all of them, but every one of them in different amounts. So you can get autistic people who are very, very sensitive to all kinds of sensory input. And then you can get autistic individuals who are not very sensitive to that, but they might struggle a lot more with social interactions, whereas the other person doesn't so much and so on and so forth. So there's like, you know, like a very large amount of different combinations and different kind of intensities of these things, how they play out in people. And that's what's meant with there is like a huge variety in the autistic experience and in the autism spectrum because everyone's so different because everyone's got like a different combination and intensity of all these traits. That's a really great explanation. Yeah. So it's not like it's linear that this person is less autistic than the other person. They just have like a different combination of the traits and maybe some of the traits or some of the things they really struggle with aren't as visible to Mm. strangers they might only be happening at home or something. And then, you know, they appear less autistic, but actually they're just as autistic if you can say something like that as um, other autistic people. And um, that's kind of like the problem with the functioning labels. When you say someone's high functioning, in a way you're saying, oh, you're fine, you know, you're high functioning. You can, you can manage, right? Uh, you don't struggle at all. And it often results in people not getting any support. Mm. And that's really problematic. So the functioning labels I read were actually originally describing IQ. 
So they didn't actually refer to the autism, but rather to like co-occurring things like intellectual disabilities that some autistic people have. So a low-functioning autistic person might be intellectually disabled and have a low IQ. And that's what low-functioning actually referred to. And then high-functioning would describe someone who's got a high IQ. But actually, this doesn't say anything about how much they struggle with their autism in daily life. Because as we, like, if we take the example of Nojio and, you know, we assume he's autistic, we can see him struggle. Sure, he manages at work, but as soon as he comes home, he's completely drained. He's completely exhausted. And he just tries to kind of like recover in whatever way he can. So some people might say he's high functioning because he's very intelligent, doesn't mean he doesn't struggle and it doesn't mean that he doesn't need support so a lot of people who might be described as high functioning they still struggle with i don't know let's say uh, making appointments for the doctors because they hate talking on the phone because that's something a lot of people struggle with so just because they can manage a normal life they might need help with that and a lot of times the support actually comes from friends from family or it ends up that those people don't go to the doctors because that little thing of making the appointment with a phone call, they just can't do that. But because they're described as high functioning, they are often dismissed in the sense that they don't get any professional help. So if they don't have family and friends to help with that, there's also, they don't get from the NHS or something like that, someone who kind of like occasionally where they can message via WhatsApp, can you please book me an appointment with this and this doctor or something like that, which would be very helpful to many people, I think. So basically why there's so much opposition to the functioning labels is that it often means that people don't get the support they need. And actually that's what kind of what apparently you get with your diagnosis. You get not a functioning label, but like a support level. So there's like three levels of support. And if you have in quotation marks, mild autism, you get the functioning level and uh, the support level, sorry, needs support. Then there's the second level that requires substantial support. And then there's a third level that says requires very substan substantial support. So it's like focuses on the support and not on what from the outside people might perceive you can do. Yes. Sorry, this was very long. No, no, no. It was really <laughs> useful. Really useful. <laughs> And so, um, so really, that's the problem with functioning labels, right? Describing someone's high functioning just often leads to people thinking they don't need support or that you're they're less autistic. And actually, at its worst, it's ableist, right? Yeah. Because it's saying that we value those people that are high functioning autistic people that can contribute to society and be living like neurotypical ones and abled ones and we don't value so much those who are long low functioning, and we need to kind of segregate and label them, which is obviously not where we need to be as a society. Right. So one of the other things I wanted to make a point was the one of the more powerful speeches that Jiok uh, makes for me is when he talks to Bong Hee about how it feels to have been stalked. And it struck me as important when I was watching this drama because actually I got really invested in her. Like at that point she had unrequited love and hadn't seen it as stalking you know she was just so in love with him and she just wanted to see him all the time now with a better understanding of his character that it might be autistic I wondered how you think this might have impacted him I loved this speech I loved this episode I loved how it played out and I loved that they kind of made a point of actually discussing why this is problematic 
So it's not the topic of this podcast, obviously, but there is so many scenes and which is why I love this drama so much. There's so many scenes with green flag moments when it comes to like relationships between people. And I think this is one of them because so many things that are problematic are romanticized in dramas. And I think things like this aren't actually called out enough like this whole like her being in love and following him around and trying to see him every day and she even argues in the drama oh but it's not you know I'm not doing anything I'm not harming anyone and I think that often gets romanticized and I really like that it got called out in this drama and that they discussed it why it was problematic yeah I think that was really good but I think in terms of like autism and if he noticed it, I don't think he noticed the st- stalking because there's a scene a little bit after that where Bongi talks to Mr. Pang and he says, oh no, he wouldn't have, you know, he never notices if anyone's got a crush on him. Mm. And that there were like several people in the office, like in previous years, who had a crush on him because obviously it's Ji Chang you know, who wouldn't have a crush on him. <laughs> and <laughs> so... But he never noticed it. So I don't I don't know if the stalking itself would have impacted him. But but obviously the him not noticing is again something that we've I think discussed in the other podcast um the last time. This whole, how do you say, duality of being very attentive and at the same time very inattentive yeah. depending on if you care about people or if you don't care about people so when she was stalking him that was like a phase where he was very turned inside himself when he was uh, suffering from depression and things like that so I don't think he would have noticed very much or had very much capacity to kind of like notice what was going on around him yeah so I yeah in my opinion he didn't he didn't notice that she was doing that and it completely went over his head. Right guys so this this question isn't in the script but I thought it was actually I think we did chat about it in the WhatsApp and I thought it was a really interesting point to note was what did you see as kind of autistic about his his friendship so his best friend obviously he fell out and a lot of the drama shows his friend wanting forgiveness and Gio not repeatedly not wanting to give him his forgiveness but at the same time also not being able to fully let go of what they had as a friendship to me that's a very autistic thing but I mean it might not be I don't know to not be able to let go and hold grudges in a certain way I don't know where I, I couldn't explain though what what's behind it, but I think it's just very hard to move on from things like that and to kind of like process these things. And especially in this case, in this friendship case from this drama, they were best friends since childhood. You know, his friends were with him when his dad died. Yeah. And this was one of the diff- most difficult times in his life. And they supported him throughout that, although they were just kids and they've always been there for him. And then to have this betrayal happen from these people that were so dear to him must have just, he must have experienced that in a really, really intense way. And I know I know that from myself and I know that's that, that's like an autistic experience that lots of autistic people have. I mean, we're said to not be very empathetic and not feel 
or whatever people say, you know, silly things. But for me, it's often that I actually, I try to not feel too much sometimes and kind of like keep a distance from topics because when I do feel and when I do care about people, then it's very intense. Mm. And sometimes I feel like it's more intense than maybe neurotypical people do it. So I think these people really meant a lot to him. He felt like such an intense love and friendship for them that the betrayal kind of also, he felt that in a very, very intense way. And that's why it's so hard for him to get over it. But at the same time, there's such an important part of his life and he doesn't have that many friends that he can't let go. And they're still so important that he still keeps them around in his life and I mean we do have some progression he keeps saying he doesn't want to forgive but there is some progression throughout the drama that kind of like gets them closer again yes so maybe it's just you know like a time thing maybe he just needs longer to go through all these stages of grief and forgiveness and all this stuff that that's just a lot more drawn out even over years because he experiences the betrayal and the meaning of the friendship in so much more intense ways yeah yeah I actually like the way that he didn't forgive very easily so it took you know the entire length of the drama for that relationship to kind of get back to some kind of even keel yeah right so I hope everyone found that interesting I definitely did and I definitely learned a lot thank you so much for those people who've been giving us um, some feedback as uh, we've been mentioning that we've been doing this autistic coded uh, series so if you've got any other dramas or characters that you think might potentially be autistic coded please do feel free to email the podcast on afternoona delight podcast at gmail.com or on the at afternoon uh, delight podcast social media accounts on instagram or twitter and we started a spreadsheet haven't we got all very organized this time <laughs> and we've got some topics and things that we want to cover in the future in future episodes so please do keep any ideas uh, and things coming because we'd love to hear from you. so i just thought it might be fun just to end on what everyone's watching right now now that I finished Suspicious Partner, <laughs> I can start Till the End of the Moon, which is a sea drama. And it has Lo Yung-shi and Bai Lu. And it's on Yuku and it's about, or actually just got put on Vicky as well. So it's another Shanxia sea drama. So it's got lots of fantasy elements and, you know, creatures and costumes and all these like epic multi-layered storylines. And so many of my Twitter friends right now are watching it because it's it's ongoing and they're all screaming about it on Twitter. And like the the whole fear of missing out thing's been really big with me because <laughs> I've just been seeing all of their epic, all their epic tweets and posts about it. And I was like, oh, I just have to start this now. So that's what I'll be watching. Great. Let us know how it is because I've got one of these because obviously I don't, you guys, I just really loved Love Between Fairy and Devil. It was my favourite drama of 2022 and I felt badly for Dong Fang Ting Tang. So I've actually been watching this on the sidelines with interest because like I said, it keeps feeling, it's getting a lot of people kind of uh, similar mm-hmm. vibes. And um, so I'm just giving some, giving it some time to see if it still meets that promise before diving in. Because I always feel like I'm a bit hesitant to commit to a sea drama because the like the the number of episodes that generally have. So, uh, <laughs> let, let me know how you. So so for me, I've just wrapped up actually a couple of dramas. I've just literally today wrapped up Taxi Driver season two, which I have absolutely loved. I don't know if you guys have seen it. I don't know if action kind of vigilante revenge dramas are your thing but if they are i just love this series so much and they've actually renewed they've confirmed they're gonna go into season three because their domestic ratings have been really high their finale got 21 
percent of the domestic audience, um, which is the highest any drama has got this year so far. So it's obviously been phenomenally successful in Korea, and so they're renewing for season three, which made me really happy. Uh, but it's so good. So if anyone kind of might think this might be part of their wheelhouse, so it's action, it's revenge. Uh, Lee Ji Hoon plays this. Well, actually, his own character is really stoic and quite quiet and very contained. But in these episodic stories that this drama covers, where he's enacting revenge on behalf of his customers, he takes on loads of different personas and loads of different costumes. And it's it reminds me a lot of the A-Team for anyone who's kind of like similarly old as I am. And into that. <laughs> it's just a cultural, a cultural reference. But it's like, you know, that whole face thing where he kind of like always does like lots of different disguises and puts on different voices and different, but it's just all of that wrapped up in this drama. And it's not as cheesy as the A-Team, but it has got those kind of elements to it. So it's kind of like, it's got that really, really good Korean kind of mix of quite serious topics with humour, with a good squad. Um, and it's uh, it's just really well executed. So I can't, I can't recommend it enough. And then I've just also wrapped up Call It Love, which has not had the attention that I think it should have. So a lot of the people on the Patreon in Afternoon Delight Patreon have really loved this drama. It's super quiet, really, really subtle, a beautiful, beautiful romance drama. And it really needs to be seen by by more people. So I have uh, posted a lot on my Instagram about how amazing it is. If it if it kind of piques your interest, go and take a look at some posts there. But um, yeah, I've tried to make you guys uh, watch it too, right? Because I'm just so <laughs> evangelical about this. Like, you guys have to watch this. Yeah. What about you, Francisca? Well, I said this earlier. I already found your list now. It'd be stressful for me. <laughs> There's just so many dramas. So I just keep away from all the currently airing stuff. And, you know, if it's really, really good, it'll turn up again at some point. So I'm watching older stuff. And a couple of weeks ago, I finished Dali and Cocky Prince, which I loved. Uh, It's such a nice drama. I really, really enjoyed it. It was just like well written all through. I love the characters. I love the story. And I kind of had a little crush on Kim Min Jae. And so <laughs> I've moved on to Do You Like Brahms with him and Park and Bin, yes. which was, I, I actually went to a classical concert yesterday because of it. Um, so the, Oh, wow. Yes, so the, the story <laughs> setup is really, really interesting because they kind of pick up this old story between Johannes Brahms, Schumann and Schumann's wife, Clara, and they had like a love triangle going and they're kind of like mirroring this in this drama that's about classical musicians and it's got themes of talent you've got hard work you've got love for music and all the characters in this drama have like different amounts of each of these components and you kind of like see how that plays out in their life and how yeah how how it changes their path and their career and things like that so I really enjoyed that and currently because I finished that I've moved on to the next Kim and Jay drama, <laughs> which I also love. And it's called, what is it called? Flower Crew, Joseon Marriage Agency. Ah. And it sounds ridiculous. The title sounds absolutely ridiculous, but the drama is excellent. I've got two episodes to go. I don't want it to finish. I didn't expect it to be this good, oh, wow. but it's really, really, really good. Um, I'm really enjoying all the characters in it. And um, yeah. Great. I have that one on my I have that one on my to watch list. So now you've yeah really, really pushed me to watch it now because yeah you've enticed me. So ah. <laughs> yeah, it's just 
I, I often struggle with these historical dramas because they've got kind of too much court intrigue and mm. I can't keep up with all the names and all the intrigues. But this drama has just enough and I don't think it actually follows any actual historical events. And it's just got like a really, you know, it's got the, the, the leads who are interesting. It's got a love triangle. It's got, we've got a glow up for the, um, actually it's, it's similar to Suspicious Partner in the setup that we've got kind of a highly intelligent, slightly reserved male lead and a female lead that's a hot mess and brings chaos <laughs> to everything. So, you know, if, if people like that sort of thing, but in a historical setting, then this might be for you. <laughs> cool. Yeah, you're selling it. I mean, I love I love Kim and Jay as well. And actually he's such such a versatile actor. Like his his role. Oh, really yeah, is. his role in Dali and Cocky Prince is so completely different from his Do You Like Brahms? Like they're just mm-hmm. like chalk and cheese, right? And then um yeah, yeah, yeah. and then I didn't realize until I went back and looked at his Asian wiki and saw and then it came up that he was in Goblin. And I was like, he was in Goblin? Like when was he in Goblin? <laughs> and then I realized he actually played the king in the flashback of the previous life um oh. Goryu period. But obviously he was very young back then uh, in 2016. Mm. So yeah, yeah. So great. Okay, excellent. So I'm going to leave it here today. And obviously we've got more podcasts to come up because we've got so many more topics to discuss. So some of the things that we're going to be looking at are examples of where dramas have handled autism badly. We also really want to deep dive Moon Sang Tae from It's Okay to Not Be Okay because he's one of our favourite autistic characters in in any drama, Korean or otherwise. Uh, and as I said, if you've got any suggestions, do drop us a line. But until then, we really hope you enjoyed our podcast today. And until next time, Annyeong! Thank you for listening. We hope you've enjoyed our pod. Follow us on our Instagram at AfternoonerAsks or our website, www.afternoonerasks.com. To get more K-drama content from a writer's lens, follow our sister pod, Afternooner Delight. For any BTS fans out there, our other sister pod, Afternooner Army, is here for all your needs. If you want to hang with us and other K-drama fans, do consider joining us on Afternooner Delight Patreon. There are different levels for you to access. Go to www.afternoonadelightpodcast.com to sign up. Finally, if you have any questions for us, please feel free to contact us via our socials or our email, afternoonerasks at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you. Until next time, see you next time.